Hello everybody, it's Colin Ellis. It's Monday the 4th of April 2022 and welcome to another Culture and Coffee podcast, which I'm delighted to say. Well, I'm not sure whether I'm delighted to say it makes it sound like I was really desperate to leave Australia, which I suppose after two years it's good to get away. Um, but I'm recording this live in, in uh, America. Uh, which was a stress in itself, but anyway, I'll get the, the podcast is about that. Podcast is about how to build multicultural teams, but I will give an insight in how to get there. Um, but I am in I'm in Beverly Hills. I'm in a I'm in a coffee uh, shop called Blue Bottle Coffee uh, in Beverly Hills. My coffee is a pour over, and it's a Colombian Narino Yacuanca. Narino Yacuanca uh, from yeah from Blue Bottle Coffee. On uh, Beverly Boulevard, I'm just checking. Yeah, there we go. Beverly Boulevard West, uh, in Beverly Hills. So quick sip of this coffee. And that is, um, that's really nice. It's kind of dark stone fruit. Really nice. Uh, it's quite, ever so slightly jet lagged. Not too bad, could have been worse, uh, but slightly jet lagged. It's, it's a very weird thing, jet lagged. You know that, that thing where the floor moves, or it feels like it is, and you feel like you're on shaky ground? <laughs> I felt like that all my life that I'm on shaky ground. It's got nothing to do with jet lag. Uh, so yes, uh, here I am in America, and, and and I think if I can pass on one tip, if you are planning to travel to America, especially, um, is make sure that you plan it really well. And I mean, like the vaccination requirements and all of that sort of print everything off because it seems to me that they do everything up front so I'm you know the last time I was here which was uh, 2020 it was the last international trip I did which was February 2020 is I felt like they did everything at Los Angeles airport so you know they checked all of the paperwork you had to do the Esther the, the um, visa to work everything was checked out all these questions I feel like all of that happened at, at Melbourne airport so you know all of the vaccination we used the attestation form to, to uploaded everything, all the, the documentation there. So it was a bit of a breeze to get through. I mean, they, you know, get through airports always takes time, but that didn't feel any different. But because I'd uploaded everything and we had everything printed out, that that, uh, that made way easier. Um, so yeah, so you just want to try and I I think we travel because but because it's different now because of COVID, because of the need for vaccine passports and all of that. There's a lot more stress than there used to be. So, you know, my advice is to minimise it as much as possible. And interestingly, last week, you know, actually the biggest stress of all, so in the US, there's a requirement to have a negative PCR test within one day of your flight. So I swear, it's like being on death row. Like, and I'm over-dramatising it in the way that I often do, but it is, because like, you want to pack, you want to get everything ready, but actually, like, there is also a chance that you just might not be going <laughs> because the, the, the PCR test will come back. And, like, for the family, we have been well for two years. Touching wood while well, I'm the all know the rules, touch wood, that means everything will be all right. We've been well for two years, then my son got a cold like the day before we were due to take our PCR test. It's like, you've got to be joking. Uh, but anyway. As you can tell, we're here now. They all came back negative, but it was so stressful. And then as soon as we got the results, which was like five o'clock 
the day before we were due to fly, it, you know, not only was there wild celebration, but there was also immediate panic about all the things that we had to do. Anyway, um, someone said to me, he's like, oh, is it not a bit of a risk to go anywhere? I said, I just want to see how other, co- other countries are doing COVID, you know, and we're, we're taking, we'll take all the precautions while we're here, as you do. What would Mark Zuckerberg say? The riskiest thing to do is to take no risks at all. Uh, although the Cambridge Analytica scandal you know, kind of proves you can take it far too literally. Anyway, while I'm in America, I thought I'd talk about how to build multicultural teams. I, um, over the last two years, I, I think one of the things about COVID and the pandemic, you know, and you always try and look for positives. There have been so many negatives and continue to be, obviously, in the way that it affects people's lives. I don't want to downplay that. Obviously, from, from my perspective, it, it meant there was a greater opportunity for remote work. So it's something that I've always done is work with teams remotely. Just there wasn't that much of an appetite for organisations to do it. Um, but, but the pandemic really changed all of that. So all of a sudden I was working with companies all over the US and in Europe as well, which was um, which was really interesting because what I had to do was to really learn the different cultures that I was working with before I actually ran the workshops because. You know, it's one of those things that we make an assumption that every culture is like ours, and it's not. Now, I had experience of this in 2017. I worked with an insurance company in, in Asia in 2017-18, and ended up delivering in like 13 countries. It was something crazy like that. Like, you know, uh, I was in uh, Japan, Thailand, Singapore, Malaysia, Hong Kong. Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, so many countries. I'm sure I've missed a few out there as well, because that definitely wasn't dirty. I missed a few out there. And, and one of the things that I did prior to that was I researched the different social cultures. Um, and I remember reading Erin Mayer's book, which I highly recommend, by the way. If you, if, if you work with multicultural teams, or if you want to work with multicultural teams, um, or if you're just interested in how social cultures are different, Erin Mayer's book is excellent. It's called The Culture Man. Uh, and what I like about it is it's accessible, you know, for the regular listeners of podcasts. You know I like the books that make stuff easy to understand. Not that necessarily that we're all dumb. I'm speaking personally. I just like it when, when kind of what could potentially be complex subjects are made easy. Now, now Erin Mayer's work is built on that of, of Gerd Hofstede's work uh, in the 19... Hofstede? Hofstede? I think it's Hofstede, he's Dutch. In the 1960s and 70s. So, so he, he, uh, he came up with this framework for cross-cultural communication called... It's called, if you want to search for it on Wikipedia, it's called Hofstede's Cultural Dimensions. And it's something that when I read Aaron Mayer's book, I became fascinated by because communication is something that I teach as part of my culture workshops. And, and so I wanted to incorporate Hofstede's work such that if, if you've got people from different social backgrounds working on your team, you gain this understanding of how we, we all do communication differently. And, and so I just thought I'd share some of this on the podcast with you, but, but I would urge you to go and, you know, kind of seek out Gerd Hofstede, H-O-F-S-T-E-D-E, Gerd Hofstede's work. Uh, and its cultural dimensions, or, or grab a copy of Aaron Mayer's book, uh, The Culture Map, uh, which is really, really good. But anyway, so so what I'm going to say, I'm going to give you five the, the, the five cultural dimensions from Hofstede's work, and then 
kind of talk to you about how this applies within, applies within a work context. And, and kind of when I teach this, people are like, oh, wow, it makes so much sense. Um, which is credit to Hofstede for doing the research, obviously. Um, but I think we should, teach, you know, I've long said that we should teach kids about communication. We should teach kids not only about um, kind of cultural heritage. So, you know, my kids are, are learning a lot about First Nations people and Aboriginal, the challenges they face, which I, which I think is fabulous. Uh, but also about how to kind of build relationships with people from other cultures. Melbourne as a city and definitely here in Los Angeles, you know, it's highly multicultural. I think these are skills for life that we can give our children. Anyway, here's the, here's the five dimensions. The first one is, is called the power distance index. So, so this is about how equally power, I'm doing my air quotes here, which is so LA, um, how equally power is distributed. So in a work context, this is really all about empowerment and trust. Um, and, and obviously empowerment and trust works differently in different countries. You know, so Erin Mary in her book, um, The Culture Map, she talks about these two leadership styles, these two leadership styles being egalitarian and hierarchical. So in an egalitarian leadership style, the kind of distance between the boss and uh, kind of someone who reports to the boss or subordinate is low. So in, in those instances, kind of we empower people, we give lots of trust. So, you know, a good example of an egalitarian culture is places like Australia and the UK. That, that's why it made the transition for me so much easier because the UK is an egalitarian culture, same as Australia, places like Holland, Denmark, Canada, uh, Sweden, you know, places like this, so kind of high trust, high empowerment, whereas hierarchical, the, the distance between the boss and the subordinate is lower, so the boss will regularly, will, will check in way more often than they would in, in an egalitarian culture, so hierarchical culture, so Japan, Korea, India, um, Russia, the Emirates, um, so that's the, that's the first thing to take into consideration is that power distance comp, uh, you know, kind of index. So when you're working with someone from another culture is, is almost ask yourself the question how do they like to be managed. So I know when I did my training course in, in Japan, obviously not only was there the language barrier, I had two interpreters online. Tell you a story. I'll tell you a very quick story. So they said, oh, um, obviously being from the UK, I'm, I'm tall, I'm six foot two, um, I, you know, I dress really smartly, you know, and they talked to me about how that would be perceived in Japan and, and the things to say to build trust. And so I was pretty nervous, right? You know, I was, I was speaking to like 150, uh, no, about 120 managers, senior managers across this insurance business who'd all come to hear me talk. And we'd had the, my slide deck was translated, so it was all in Japanese and all that kind of stuff, which was which is such a great experience. And and I opened by saying that I was from Liverpool because I know Liverpool as a city. You know, it's it, because of the Beatles, particularly Japan has got this strong linkage to, to the Beatles. And so I, my nerves got the better of me, and I said, you know, introduce myself uh, slowly. I spoke slowly, and which is hard for me, as you can tell. I said I was from Liverpool and then sang a Beatles song. 
karaoke in front of a room for over 120 managers. I was like, who? I said, hands up, who knows the Beatles? So immediately went against everything that they said about keep it low key, don't ask for large group <laughs> interaction. Who knows the Beatles and get people to put their hand up? Um, and then I started singing Hey Jude. Uh, so yeah, so that's my Japan story. So yes, that's the first thing, the power difference. I better, I better crack on here, I'll be here all day. This is what, see, I've had my coffee now, and I've got a second wind, the jet lag's wearing off. So the second thing is individual, individualism versus collectivism. So this is about, from a work context, is kind of how teams organize themselves and how people consider their contribution. And so this is where kind of preferred work style is a preferred work style about the individual or the group. And then it's about integration and, and kind of helping people with that. Now the Australian way of working is very we've got a very social culture, everyone's mate, everyone's doll, you know, like you know, surfing Bob, shrimps on the barbie, all of that, right? Which are all cliches about the Australian way of life, but it's very social culture. And so we're all about collectivism. Um, and so when we're working with other people, I'm, I'm, I'm speaking to the whole of Australia. So, so when kind of Australians go to Japan, they a country like Japan where it's very individualistic, they find it very difficult. They find it very difficult um, to, to kind of draw people out into those group uh, environments. So again, it's that understanding of, of these different group working styles. The third thing is uncertainty avoidance. So this is the tolerance for, for ambiguity. So in a work context, it's how good is the group with or without um, context. So I use the word context far too many times in that sentence. But, you know, do they want more, do they need more information to get started or less? I remember when, when I was working with the development team in India, when I was a, a senior manager in government in, in New Zealand, they wanted lots and lots of context, and my boss at the time couldn't understand. He, he, he was frustrated by a lack of initiative. And obviously I'd read Hofstede's work by this point, uh, because I'd done lots of work with, um, with teams overseas. And, and I had to explain to him that um, kind of that ambiguity, and, and again, it's not, it's not true of every individual, but in a group context, not great with it, not group with, um, uh, ambiguity. So what you have to do is be really, really specific up front about what your expectations are, where to get information, how you want it to be reported back. Uh, but, but, but especially about that context, you have to give as, as much as you can. Uh, the fourth thing is masculinity versus femininity. This is what Hofstede found in the in the 60s and 70s. Obviously, our views. Uh, gender had moved on since, but again, just in, in relation to Hofstede's work, so he found that masculinity is defined as kind of a preference that we have in society for things like heroism, achievements, rewards, trophies, whereas feminism is a preference for cooperation, modesty, uh, work-life balance, so those kinds of things, almost, almost that kind of different between more action-oriented versus more people-oriented. Now, certainly in the 60s and 70s, I think work was 
and, and definitely when I started work in the 80s, it was definitely more action-oriented. It was all about goals, you know, I mentioned before, the kind of Wall Street, uh, the movie Wall Street, which was in the late 90s, where the main character, Michael Douglas, said greed, for want of a better word, is good. And that, that was the way in the 90s, and obviously it kind of eventually led to the, the housing boom and the stock market crash. We also had the, the crash in the dot-com boom as well, because it was all about greed and material needs. You know, not everybody, but that's generally what society was about. I think that's flipped, you know, and I wrote, I wrote an article, I wrote a blog recently about purpose and how the world is more purpose-focused, and you know, I ask the question, is your organisation purpose-led or purpose-lazy? I think m most organisations want to become more, um, more purpose-led, which really expresses a preference for, for the femininity angle here. And I think we've downplayed the importance of that for far too, for far too long. It's, it has been about heroism and achievement you know, kind of indispensable employees rather than creating great cultures where all people can flourish. So that's the fourth thing. And then the last thing is long-term versus short-term orientation. So this is the connection of the past. So what have we learned from the past in relation to what we've got to do in the future? So when there's a lower degree of this particular index then traditions are honored traditions are kept and that real steadfastness is is valued those with 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 a high degree in this index so it's more of a long-term approach um then adaptation pragmatic problem solving as a necessity so this is really about flexibility and agility so how much are we going to hold on to what's gone before in order to create something for the future. You know, I always feel that there's a, there's a kind of happy medium um, here uh, between finding a good balance where you, you, you are flexible and agile around the future, but it's built on the traditions of the past and what's gone before. And so we learn those lessons and we capture what works well, but we're also agile and flexible about what, what's worked uh, in the future. And so I think, you know, understanding those dimensions, if you're a manager of a multicultural team, what you've got to do is find a balance between the, the, not only the different personalities, but also the different social cultures. So some very, very simple things to do is to get people to talk about, and this is what we used to do. I remember I flew a team over from India when I was in New Zealand. My boss did not want to do it, but we had a big program of work to deliver. And I absolutely insisted against all odds that we had to fly the development team over from India. And they were like, why? We don't understand. Why can't we just do conference calls? I'm like, because that's not how you build a team. How we build a team is we understand where people are from. We understand where people's backgrounds. We create conversations around that. We capture what's celebrated. We capture what the social norms are so that we're not making an assumption also that we're not force-feeding other people our social cultures. And so if you're a manager listening to this, you've got a multicultural team, is you need to create an environment where people talk about their, 
their social culture, talk about what's important, talk about how they like to receive, how they like to process information. Um, talk about things like trust and empowerment. Ask people what they need from you in order for them to be able to do their best work. You know, communication is, is, is a term that we throw away. When you're good at communication, there's a real recognition that not only can you talk human to human, uh, but you can also talk country to country. Uh, so you have that appreciation that, yes, we're all different as humans, but we've also got different backgrounds. You know, and I, th you know, one of the quotes I like from, I hope I get it right when I quote this, Erin, if you're listening, I'm sorry, um, is she said, in today's business environment, it's not enough to be hierarchical or egalitarian. You have to be both. You have to have an appreciation of different people's cultures, different communication mechanisms. You have to have an appreciation of the things that people celebrate um, and what they stand for in their social cultures as well as understanding their personality. All right, it is, what time is it here now? It is 2 p.m. Well, on Sunday, Los Angeles time, and I think it's 7 a.m. Melbourne time. So um, if you're listening in Australia, I hope you have a fabulous Monday. If, wherever you are in the world, I hope you have a fabulous rest of the weekend or whenever you listen to this. Um, and look forward to talking to you soon. Okay, to off now.